1997, in Hong Kong, a three-year-old child, Lam Hoi Ka, died from a new type of flu, H5N1. At the time, K.G. Fukuda was an epidemiologist at the World Health Organization. On hearing the news that a brand new virus had killed a child, he thought, this is how it begins. This story comes from a new book, The End of Epidemics, The Looming Threat to Humanity and How to Stop It, by Dr. Jonathan Quick. And we are delighted to have Jonathan on the line for this latest BMJ clinical podcast on pandemic infections. Jonathan is a global health expert and family doctor with experience in more than 70 countries, including some of the most prone to pandemics. So, Jonathan, you're welcome, and let's start off. Could you tell us what exactly is a pandemic? Well, if we start with the concept of epidemics, epidemics are an unusual increase um, in a disease, usually an infectious disease, but can be applied elsewhere. A pandemic is an epidemic that is affecting large areas, crossing borders, and typically kills uh, thousands, if not uh, eventually millions of people. The human impact can be astounding. The 1918 Spanish flu pandemic that we talk about killed 50 to 100 million people. Something like that today could kill 200 to 400 million people and rival nuclear, the effects of a, a nuclear confrontation. The economic impact could be something like the Great Recession, putting millions out of work. So something that big is low likelihood, but still plausible. And that, that's a pandemic. And why in recent years are we getting so many infectious disease pandemics? Well, we, we've had basically an, an exponential increase and three out of four new pandemics come from an animal to uh, human species jump. That was true of, of AIDS. Um, it's true of, of Ebola and, and of Zika. The factors are basically population growth. We're four times the population we were 100 years ago. Um, urbanization, uh, that crowding factor perpetuates things like flu, but also the Ebola outbreak in 2014, which was so horrific. What made that horrific was that it was our first real experience with, with, with urban Ebola. The 2014 Ebola outbreak was an example of the effects of, of urbanization. That was the first urban Ebola outbreak and it was, it was devastating. Travel, we're 50 times as mobile, 10 million people every day in the air, and there isn't any place in the world virtually that's, that's less than 24 to 36 hours by a combination of, of canoe, car, and, and plane. Climate change, that makes us more vulnerable. Uh, the food demand, pigs and chickens are, are uh, pandemic incubators in a sense for particularly the flu. Deforestation puts us closer, conflict. So the, 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 all of the risk factors for uh, major disease pandemics are, are on the increase. Okay, and you mentioned um, cities or, or uh, urban environments. What is it about urban environments that can contribute to the spread? Well, so part of it is, is, the, uh, is the crowding, just that we're, we're living closer together. Uh, typically, cities will have parts that are that are uh, really poor with with poorer sanitation, 
and, and, and that's a factor. The mosquito, the Zika yellow fever dengue mosquito is more of an urban dweller, so, so that's a factor. And also the, the, the through travel of, of cities. And finally, that's where major health institutions are. And without really careful planning, hospitals quickly become uh, not just treatment centers, but transmission centers for outbreaks when everybody's coming to the hospital. That's what happened with, with uh, Ebola in West Africa, clearly, and it happens sometimes in, in, in flu outbreaks. So it, it's all of those factors that makes cities a, a particular risk. Okay, great. Thank you. And how can we prevent all these pandemics, if that's not too simple a question? We can't prevent local disease outbreaks. That's going to happen. The bugs will always be with us. Uh, But to a very large extent, the difference between local outbreaks and catastrophic epidemics, regional epidemics and pandemics is human action or inaction. So the key thing is investing in building strong public health systems that can do the prevention, immunization, mosquito control, whatever, that can detect early. Delayed detection of outbreaks increases the death rate, gives the epidemic a head start on us. And and finally, a rapid response. So those three things, prevention, detection, response, are critical. Only one out of three countries worldwide has the systems that the the basic systems to do those three functions. So number one, uh, we have to build strong public health systems. Number two, to prevent pandemics, we need to invest in innovation for for prevention. Uh, We've had the, the, uh, the flu vaccine, for example, was first used 80 years ago. And in many ways, we're we're applying the same sort of trial and error approach to to flu vaccine, whereas a universal vaccine offers uh, real potential to to cover most or all of the flus, but we've been laid off the mark. That's finally taken off. Um, And investing in early warning systems. And the third thing is to hold our leaders accountable, get clear commitments for investing in building health systems, in, in innovation, um, and to, to, to keep their commitments to do that. We've seen over and over and over again the cycle of fear and panic where, where lots of promises are made by local, national, and international leaders. And then we look three, four, five, ten years later, and they're not keeping the promises and we're not moving. So those three things, the, the health systems, the innovation, and holding the leaders accountable. And specifically, you mentioned, I think, a universal vaccine. Can you tell us more about that? What exactly is that? Not everyone really appreciates what an incredibly vicious uh, potential enemy the flu virus is. That's the thing that did in 50 to 100 million people 100 years ago and could do it again today. And flu travels in packs. It's not one virus. There's usually two or three or four viruses. It's continually mutating. It's got lousy self-correction mechanisms, so it's continually mutating, changing, exchanging genes among pigs and, and, and waterfowl and, and humans. So the vaccine, we keep trying to, to keep up with this. The idea of a universal flu vaccine is to, is to get the parts of the flu virus that are the most stable, that don't change, 
it won't be one and done like some of the childhood vaccines or one or two or three. What it would be is a vaccine that would last multiple seasons and cover a wide range of influenza viruses. Okay, and are there any downsides to this type of vaccine? Not if we if we develop it in a proper way with the proper safety tests, and um, and are sure that it it works with the the way in which the the flu creates immunity, and also it has to be sure that it's not inadvertently stimulating unintended immune responses, uh, which uh, are sometimes associated with flu. So th- th- yes, there are potential a- adverse uh, effects that we need to take into consideration in the development. I have great confidence that a, a well-developed universal flu vaccine um, will any any potential uh, si- downsides are far far outweighed by the, um, the by the major impact on saving lives. Okay, thank you. And you mentioned leaders and leadership. How can we put leaders and leadership in place to prevent pandemics? Well, the first thing is to is to take initiative on our part, on the part of the the public health community and the medical community to to understand what's what number one, what's at stake and number two, to take pride in the fact that scientists and public health people know what we should be doing. Um, and what we need is the, the public support, the support of the business community. So in each country, the particular network of stakeholders is going to vary. But in most countries today, there are medical organizations that are attuned to the local political scene. Politics and political engagement is not a positive or negative value in itself. It's a way of getting public decisions, decisions by government, local, national, international, and by private industry, decisions to invest and to do the things that are needed. So first of all, our own knowledge, and next of all, really engaging uh, with those groups in the country that that are involved in making the decisions about public allocations and in, in, in public invest investments, and then uh, participating in groups like like Global Citizen. Global Citizen is an international network of people in scores of countries, largely young people, but people who are engaged in wanting a, a fairer and safer world, and among other things. When the G20, the largest economies, come together, the global citizen group is there and and basically say, when you were in Japan two years ago, here's what you promised to do to protect the world from pandemics. Here's what you've done. Here's what you haven't done. And that's the accountability part of it. Okay, thank you. And what place does the One Health movement have in preventing pandemics? One Health is a concept that says humans and animals are part of the overall global ecology, and um, and we really need to pay attention to, to that in interaction, and to recognize that in, indeed th- three out of four epidemics, major pandemic uh, diseases, come from animals, and uh, bats are at the top of the list for be for housing uh, being the, the the host for these pandemics, flus. But we we need to it be involved with the animal folks in several different ways uh, within countries 
um, the the agriculture departments in countries play an important role in food safety, and um, so that's a critical factor. Bush meat is is a source of Ebola, so there are several interactions, and we always make progress, better, more progress in this area when we work with the veterinarians and we work with the departments of agriculture as well as the, uh, the Department of Health. And again, this is both local and, and national. And what about disease surveillance and reporting? What role does that play? Well, we're in an interesting evolution now because the difficulty that we had, you know, 10 or 15 years ago was we weren't harvesting the information that was coming through through social media, through news reports and all of that. And the local disease surveillance um, tended to be or often, too often, kind of bureaucratic, a, a slow process that goes up the line with a series of, of reports. And what's happening now is a number of different groups, HealthMap and, and, and other groups that are, are harvesting information, outbreak reporting and all through kind of crowdsourcing, in essence, participatory surveillance, where smartphones become a source of reporting. And, and that sort of direct reporting is, a, is an important way of gathering information. In the field of hurricanes and various tropical storm deaths, we've been able to reduce mortality, deaths from, from weather-related events, 95% in the last 50 years by good early warning systems. So frontline surveillance that is really tied through, through so-called big data, through, through information systems that really see patterns, that has great potential to save lives. Okay, and there's a lot of talk about building capacity. How do we effectively build capacity in the healthcare workforce to prevent pandemics? Well, making sure that that the pandemic risks are an important part of health worker training. It's not a question with frontline health workers, community health workers and midwives and other frontline health workers. It's not a question of primary care or outbreak uh, recognition. It's not an either or, it's an, it's an and both. So training about identifying unusual disease occurrences and raise, you know, reporting it, that should be part of the curriculum. One example, Uganda is uh, a country that's had multiple Ebola outbreaks and, and other infectious disease outbreaks. The, the Ministry of Health has had a program to train and accredit community drug sellers, drug just medicine dispensers, and these folks have been given a module on early recognition of new outbreaks. And so that sort of involvement at the front line is, is a key part of building the capacity of the workforce to early um, identify outbreaks, and then also to be aware of the sort of uh, kind of do's and don'ts about responding to outbreaks. And among other things, when you do have outbreaks of things like Ebola, it's rapidly organizing to quickly separate and triage the, the folks that are potentially ill from people who are seeking care otherwise, because outbreaks often cause as many deaths as they did in West Africa from disruption of primary care services like immunization and, and skilled birth attendants for, for uh, safe deliveries. 
So what you want to be sure is that the frontline health workers are able to uh, sort of separate out the triage and management of this acute outbreak and keep routine services moving in parallel to the maximum extent possible. Okay, thank you. And last question is about this concept of disease X um, related to priority infectious diseases. Tell us about disease X. What's it all about? Well, this is a term that the World Health Organization Research and Development Blueprint for Infectious Diseases. This is a a priority list of diseases for which vaccines, medicines, or diagnostics are needed. And this is something WHO has been doing since Ebola. In March of this year, when they did the annual review, they added what they called disease X. Now, this sounds like some sort of a kind of a Madison Avenue or Hollywood term, but actually it's not. The concept is we need to be ready for a disease that we've never seen before and understand that we're going to have to think differently and be aware. And this isn't, this isn't uh, science fiction. If you think about it, when AIDS hit and was recognized in, in the early 1980s, that was the disease X of the 20th century. It was, a, it was the first new pandemic human pathogen in modern times. It, it, we now know that it came out of southeast Cameroon and in around the 1920s, slowly worked itself down into the, the Congo and uh, then really spread when, when guest workers that the uh, colonial uh, Belgians had brought from Haiti were sent back to Haiti. And it really, we, we spent a decade trying to just figure out the basics. So that was the d- disease X of, of the of the 20th century, uh, SARS, a totally new uh, pathogenic virus that came out of rural China in 2003, uh, was carried by a doctor who cared for a patient. It was carried to the Metropole Hotel in Hong Kong, and from there spread within weeks to 27 countries. Fortunately, through good public health response, that outbreak, which in the end killed about 800 people and affected 8,000, but could have gone and really, really global in a big way and stayed. That was stopped within six months, but that was basically a disease X. And you could probably, you could argue that because the Zika virus, which has been around 70 years, more than 70 years, and was most of that time an asymptomatic sort of nothing virus, underwent a major change in Micronesia when that virus started moving east 15 years ago. So it was really effectively a a functionally a new virus when it landed in Brazil and got embedded and all of a sudden sort of broke out like a, uh, because it had gotten into the mosquito community, the the 80s community there, and all of a sudden was was in large parts of Brazil causing horrific uh, agony to mothers because of the birth defects um, which which were new since that uh, outbreak in Micronesia and the and the um, Guillain-Barre, the paralysis syndrome that, that comes with it. So we, we need to be alert to the fact that there are going to be new viruses we haven't seen before, and we need to be ready to, to respond quickly. 
And we need to take some confidence that we actually have been successful about against some of these disease axes through good public health response. That's why it's so important to have that, that on-the-ground preparedness and invested in, in good health systems to, to be ready to prevent, detect, and, and respond. Okay, thank you very much, Jonathan, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better recognize, report, and refer effective patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in this podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice or BMJ Learning and look at the content on pandemic infections and extremely dangerous pathogens. Thank you once again. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.